Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Highland Ridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and I'm excited that we finally have a theme song for our podcast. This is uh, Jesus, My Victory from Blair James, a friend of mine. He, he lent that to us. So just some nice piano music to, to get this thing rolling. Uh, so we are in our Torah series. It's week four. We're heading into part two of Exodus. This is chapters 19 through 40. We're fortunate on Easter of all days to have my good friend Peter Snell teaching to us. He's going to do an awesome job. Happy Easter, all of you. Christ is risen. And we're going to look at the Israelites and their, uh, really, their wandering in the wilderness and kind of the story there this morning with Peter. So without further ado, here is Peter Snell. All right. Good morning, everybody. It's the first, I think this is my debut as a recording artist, so this is really great for me. Um, So first of all, welcome. Glad everybody's here this morning on Easter Sunday. Um, So, you know, first of all, I just want to start off by talking about what the objective for this course is, this series that we've been going through. The objective kind of has been to connect the story of God as we go through the Torah to all the way to the gospel and to connect that with our spiritual walk today and see what we can gain from these Old Testament stories from the Old Testament, I mean, from what we read in the Old Testament. Um, And so as I was preparing for this, I I couldn't help but be reminded of a movie that's coming out soon. So does anybody know this this poster on the the right side. Does anybody know what that's a poster for? Oh, maybe. Anybody? <laughs> okay. So a lot of guys in the room saying, okay, so it's for the Avengers Infinity War. It's coming out April 27th. It's a superhero movie if you're not into Marvel movies, but basically it's the culmination of 11 years worth of Marvel movies. It's over 17 movies. And in the movie, Basically, every superhero from Iron Man to Black Panther is going to be in it, so it's really a big deal. And I get really excited when I talk about it. I've watched the trailer probably. Who's watched it more than once? Anybody watched it more than once? Okay. Yeah, it's really awesome. So as I prepare for this lesson, I couldn't help but notice a lot of similarities between the book of Exodus and the Avengers. Okay? So here are a few points to start out. First of all, the good guys always win in the end. Number two, there's lots of examples of a certain group of people trying to take over other groups of people and or kill them. And there's usually lots and lots of squabbling and conflict amongst the the good guys, such as in Captain America um, Civil War. And much like the Avengers movie has the task of tying together 17 movies in two hours, So I have been tasked with tying together 21 very dense chapters of Exodus while tying everything into your current spiritual walk individually and linking that spiritual walk together effortlessly with the story of the resurrection of Jesus and Easter and trying to bring you all to tears by the end of this class. So just get ready. Uh, Get your tissues ready. Uh, So just to recap from last week, I really thought about doing a lot of April Fool's jokes this morning to try to like freak people out, but I thought, no, I better not do that the first time I speak in class. I thought about like preaching on the wrong subject for five minutes, but then I thought, no, there'll be some visitors there, so they won't think that it's like a joke, and so I just decided to get to that. So we'll just go straight forward into the lesson. So last week, Scott did an amazing job 
discussing Exodus 1 through 18. And uh, if you missed it, please go back and listen to the podcast. It's really awesome. And what we talked about was the story of the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian bondage. And we discussed this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and how God's justice does not always make us feel or appear like it's correct or it's right in the moment when we view it from our finite human perspective. But when viewed in a broader and more eternal scope, it's easier to see that God is always supremely just and fair. So that brings us to the next chapter in this saga of the Torah. And if you have the poster, it's going to be on the right side of the poster. Um, So let's dive right into Exodus 19 through 40. So what we're going to see today is the story of God's people does not end with the freedom from Egyptian bondage, but rather this was only the beginning. I was just talking with David about, he was, we were talking about the Prince of Egypt. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Anybody? You know, it's, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Um, we tried watching it with our three-year-old, and she was a little scared at some point, so we backed off of it for a little bit. But um, it's a really great movie, and it demonstrates you know, God's amazing power in delivering the Israelites you know, from Egyptian bondage. But I think a lot of times we think that that's where the story ends, and we kind of forget that there's the rest of the book of Exodus. So um, one commentator that I read stated it really well when he talked about the second part of Exodus, the chapters that we're going to be discussing, said, the summary of the second part of Exodus tells us of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai and the institution of the Old Testament system of worship culminating in the consecration of the tabernacle and seeing the tabernacle as the visual symbol of God's presence within his people. We're going to talk a lot about presence this morning, so be thinking about what you think presence is. And we'll go ahead and watch the video and go from there. All right. So, if you haven't watched all the previous videos, and this is the first one you've seen, I encourage you to go back on the website and, uh, and look at those, because they're really, really well done. I think they're really awesome to kind of see how all of this strings together. So, let's start off Exodus 19, and then we'll move through the rest of these points, kind of uh, point by point. So, first of all, Exodus 19, the setting at Sinai is what I've, we've kind of labeled this one. And this is a scene where God descends down on his people at Sinai. So that begs the question, well, God's already there. Why does he need to descend down on his people? Well, I think it was a couple different reasons why. First of all, God tells us in verse 9, he says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you. He's talking about Moses. And, and they will always put their trust in you. So it kind of boosts Moses' credibility, right? Because he's leading these millions of people now in the desert, and he needs to consolidate his power. He needs to kind of show that Moses is in control here. But I think there's another thing that the video alludes to that God does when he comes down to his people. He's demonstrating his presence. It really sounds like a scene out of Lord of the Rings, which is why I put this scene up here. I I think about Mount Doom when I was thinking about Mount Sinai, because it's really kind of a scary setting when the Lord comes down off of, uh, you know, from the sky down on this mountain. 
In verses 19 through, or 16 through 19, it says, On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood in front of the mountain. So he's leading them out, and they're standing there, and they're waiting. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke built up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. So this is a scary moment. This is a scary scene. If you were just reading this objectively, we've got fire, thunder, smoke. It's billowing out of this mountain, and there's trumpets blaring. So what happens next is God gives strict strict instructions on what will happen if the Israelites approach him. Since he's coming down and he's now present, he's telling them, you know, these certain people can come a certain distance to me, then others can come closer, and then you can come the closest, Moses. And it serves kind of as a reminder to me in this set of verses that God is not always a cuddly, you know, warm God that we can just, you know, slap on the shoulder and um, buddy up with. He's also a dangerous God. And if we approach him in the presence of sin, we'll be destroyed, we'll be obliterated because he cannot be in the presence of sin because he is so holy. We'll talk more about that later. God's not always uh, a cuddly, uh, you know, kid's version of the God that we read about in Bible stories. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, we did a series on uh, C.S. Lewis not too long ago. And I love those books because if you haven't read them, Aslan is this lion figure and he's the Christ-like image. And there's one scene where the Pevensey children are talking with these, uh, this married beaver couple. <laughs> and the beavers are just, they're telling the Pevensey children about like, What's going on? What's this world about? And they're telling him about Aslan. And one of the children asks the beavers, it says, is, is Aslan, this lion, is he safe? And one of the beavers replies, well, who said anything about safe? No, he's not safe. Of course he isn't, he, but he is good. And I always love that because it reminds me that we serve a powerful God and there's, we shouldn't fear him in the sense of, he can, you know, he can, he should be someone that we sh could be destroyed by, which he could, but since he is so good, his nature does not prevent, his nature does not allow that. And so um, that's just a point I want you to kind of remember as we're reading about this and seeing these scary scenes is God, even though he is kind of scary and coming off the mountain, he's also very good. So let's go back to our story and talk about God's presence. So first of all, what do we mean by presence? I kind of want to throw this out there. When I say God's presence or just presence in general, what do you think about? Like if you're going to a job interview or you're on stage at a show, what does someone's presence mean? Certain like closeness or intimacy or um, almost sort of like relationship, like in a nonverbal sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Relationship or closeness. Anybody else? When you're like reviewing a performance or a job candidate and you say they have strong presence, you mean that like it's impossible to ignore them right. when they're there. Like right. They make an impression upon you and there's never a moment when they're in the room that you're kind of drifting somewhere else. Right. I think that kind of connects in there. So it makes it impossible for you to ignore them. Right. 
Absolutely. Well, the word presence comes from the Hebrew word panem, which can also be translated to face, like someone's face, which implies a close and personal encounter with the Lord. So God's presence can be something that people fear, such as in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve hid from God's presence. There are lots of examples throughout the Old Testament where people encountered God's presence and feared for their lives, such as right here in Exodus 19. God's presence also provides comfort in times of trouble or anxiety, so it's not always something that causes fear, but also something that causes great comfort. Psalms 42.5 says that the downcast seek Him and find encouragement and strength to praise Him. And one of the most important ways we see God's presence at work in the Old Testament is in times of covenant renewal. Okay, so when Isaac blessed Jacob, we read that the presence of God was there, this covenant was made. When Aaron was confirmed as God, God's high priest, God was present in that scene. As the Israelites entered into Canaan later on in the Torah, Moses tells the Israelites that they are standing in God's presence. And as they uh, undertake this enormous task in entering Canaan and the Promised Land, God is constantly assuring Israel that He will provide the strength that they need. So this presence is very important. And the point I'm trying to hit home here is just look throughout the story of the Bible at how God desperately pursues a relationship with us and with His people. He shows us repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and carries this pursuit over to today. If you think about it, it's totally absurd that this being so mighty and powerful would even want to have a relationship with us. But the fact of the matter is that He does want this relationship. We have nothing to lose in accepting this relationship with God and everything to gain. While it's completely the opposite for God, as it talked about in the video, he's putting himself out there. He has everything to lose and nothing to gain from a relationship with just us. So back to Exodus 19, ever since the fall of man in Genesis, God has been working to restore his presence back with his chosen people. He promised his blessing AKA, you know, also known as this access or this relationship uh, to his presence to Abraham. And he is in part fulfilling this promise right now in Exodus. So when God's presence comes down, he wants to demonstrate to the Israelites what a relationship with him looks like. And that's why he gives them the law. Which brings us to the next section of scripture, which is Exodus 20 through 23, the laying down of the law. This is a picture, this is a sculpture of uh, Moses, does anybody know who made the sculpture? Michelangelo. Michelangelo. Does anybody know why he has horns? You'll notice he has horns in this picture. It's a different translation of a verse. Uh, right. Radiance from his head. Right, exactly. I knew Kyle would have the answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, so some, trans, you know, some of the early Latin translations have the same word that kind of means shining or horned. And so, uh, just a little trivia there, but some people got confused in the translation of this Latin version and actually gave Moses horns in some pictures. So impress your friends with that fact later. Um, so Exodus 20 through 23, we're laying down the law. So God st starts giving his law with the Ten Commandments. The world often speaks mockingly about the demanding nature of God's law in the Old Testament. 
And if you read this section of Scripture, you'll see there are lots of weird rules. There's lots of strange things that we're thinking, why on earth would God make a rule about that? And so whenever we read this, it kind of makes us have to think, how are we going to defend this other people? Or you know, if, I'm an uncre- if I'm not a Christian and I read this section of Scripture, what are the things that they're going to have to know to understand this part of Scripture? So how do we defend when God gives these weird rules? Well, I think it's important to understand that God is giving these laws, this set of laws, as a gift to the Israelites. He's chosen them, he's chosen them to be his favored people. When I was doing this study, it kind of it was like a, a light bulb moment for me when we're reading about this story of the Israelites being delivered from Egyptian bondage and they're brought out. God does not ask them while they're in bondage to adhere to a set of laws. He doesn't give them a checklist of you need to do this, this, and this, and this, and only if you do these things will I deliver you out of Egyptian bondage. No, instead, he gives salvation first, and then he demands obedience to his perfect law. God did not give the Ten Commandments to the Israelites while they were still slaves and require them to be adherent to them before he granted his perfect law. No, he hears the cries of their suffering and delivers them out of Egypt without a contract or any kind of prerequisite. And then once out of Egypt, God tells the Israelites that my love for you is not conditional. I have already chosen you, and so now I'm going to tell you how to live in my presence. I'm going to tell you how you should live as my chosen people. The Ten Commandments are thought of by a lot of theologians as kind of being the beginning of the Mosaic Law. So there are certain types of laws as we read through these chapters. There's ceremonial laws, moral laws, and civil laws. The ceremonial laws are kind of what you read about in like Leviticus. We think of food preparation and uh, these um, daily life activity kind of laws. Moral laws are how to love God. And civil laws are basically like the governing laws. Okay, so we see those three categories of laws in this scripture. And there's also this idea of permanence. You know, when God lays down his law in these chapters, he writes it in stone. And it's written by the hand of God. And so it's a very permanent, final thing. Um, and also the Ten Commandments, they demonstrate how the law exposes our sin. You know, in the New Testament... We read of Paul talks about the law exposing our sins. It's kind of an exposing uh, agent. And it's similar in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments and God's law instruct us on how to serve a God who loves us and has already saved us. So um, as we conclude this section of Scripture, I want to just hit home the point of the purpose of the law was in addition to establishing a relationship or a covenant with Uh, you know, the Israelites, the law was intended to set the Israelites apart to make them a nation of priests. Okay? So Exodus 24, we read about the covenant being confirmed. Okay? So God's relationship is confirmed. Briefly, this chapter just talks about how after the laws were given, Moses reads the book of the covenant to them, and they kind of all in and a collective you know, voice say, we all agree to what God requires of us. 
Then they make burnt offerings to God and symbolize their acceptance of the covenant. And God asks Moses to come up the mountain to receive the tablets of the stone um, law, which um, he will write the law on them. Um, so when Moses goes up, he stays there for 40 days and 40 nights, right? So that's kind of a long time, you know? It's like a, roughly a month and a half. And imagine yourself as one of the Israelites, you know, walking around with this guy in the desert. Yes, God delivered you from Egyptian bondage. You're excited. You know, okay, we're, yeah, we're, we're going to follow your covenant. We'll confirm that. Um, and now Moses leaves. And you're like, okay, all right. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone. We don't know what he's doing up there. And he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And so think of the things that might kind of start to happen in those situations. I can definitely see this as being like a thing where human nature can come in and start working and Satan can start to kind of play on people's you know, minds. Just imagine yourself in that situation and the things you would be thinking about if your leader took off and you didn't know where he went or you don't know what he's doing. Okay, so hold that thought. So we'll go to Exodus 25 through 31. And this big section talks about how to actually build the tabernacle, okay? So, first of all, what was the tabernacle? Well, as the video stated, it's a place for God to safely dwell among the people, basically without killing them, kind of like a portable version of God, okay? So, we talked about earlier how God is so holy that if we as sinners are in His presence alone, then we would be completely obliterated. We, we could not exist in His presence. So in this section of Scripture, I'm not going to go into every extreme detail, of, but suffice it to say, God tells the Israelites to make this tabernacle in very painstakingly specific detail. Okay, And in doing so, in making this tabernacle, we see, again, God giving a symbol of His desire to make Himself well-known and to dwell among His people, right? So the tabernacle is, in essence, the Mount Sinai in the midst of the people. And just like the Lord at Mount Sinai, there are three divisions of people that He's going to set up. And we'll learn about that more in later chapters and in subsequent books of the Torah. But there's people that can only get close to the mountain, there's people that can go on the mountain, and then there's people that can go up and approach the presence of God, which was Moses, in um, the early part of Exodus. The same is true with the tabernacle. He's going to set up a certain people to uh, be able to enter certain sections of God's presence. So here in the text we also see that this, it calls it a glory cloud, this cloud of glory that was on Mount Sinai and was so scary and dangerous and making all this noise is now coming down and is going to dwell amongst the people. So that's kind of a crazy idea, right? This such scary, like, powerful God is now going to be in a tent, basically. So what does the tabernacle demonstrate? Well, a lot of themes that the video alluded to, such as artistry and beauty, creation, there's a lot of creation language in the making of the tabernacle. And it's similar to Jesus in John 1, was one of the scriptures I thought about, where it says the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. God tabernacles with us today as 
Christians, just like he tabernacled with the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And the same could be said of the priesthood. We no longer need a high priest to intercede with God. Christ is our high priest and our intercessor. So the tabernacle, the temple, which we'll read about later on, the Ark of the Covenant, and ultimately Jesus are all answering this question of how can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? And so the next part we'll talk about in Exodus 32 through 34, we call, it's kind of called in a lot of commentaries, the second fall of man. So Exodus 31, God has kind of concluded this section where he tells about how to build the tabernacle and he gives Moses these stone tablets. Verse 18 of chapter 31 says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him two tablets of the covenant law and the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And so he goes down off of the mountain and then Exodus 32 through 34. Everything has kind of been okay up to this point. There have been some grumblings amongst the people, some minor, some minor complaints, but nothing major. But in this chapter, there is a cataclysmic event when they make the golden calf. Okay, so this is a huge turning point. This demonstrates that even though God has done all of these things up to this point, the people really have no idea who God is, that this God is that has been with them since they came out of Egypt. It's such a pivotal mo moment in the story of God's people, and it kind of shows how we, as very feeble humans, are constantly inventing, it almost seems like, new ways to forget what God has done with, for us. It's kind of like we're trying to write Him out of the story. So verse 9, it says, God said to Moses when he sees what's happening, I have seen these people and they are stiff-necked. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. So here we have God expressing his great frustration, to put it you know, lightly, that he is so sad and so distraught that the people could do this uh, to him. It's like a slap in the face. And it's kind of an interesting thing that happens at that point in verses 11 through 14. Moses then has to plead to God and tries to convince God to have mercy on the people and to not destroy them. And it made me think of, you know, how much did God really, how, how, would he actually have destroyed all these people if Moses had not intervened? And that's kind of one of those you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart kind of questions. You wonder how much God is, uh, it, I, you know, I kind of made a, an allusion in my mind to this, like when you're telling your child, you're trying to kind of lead them to doing the right thing with it being their idea in the end, but them not know about it, like reverse psychology or something. I'm sure there's like a term for that, but that's kind of how I viewed this. God is kind of showing in his own way that he is, extremely frustrated, extremely disheartened by what has happened here. And Moses is demonstrating um, his love for the people and wanting God to stick to his original promise. And so, um, you know, God does change his mind. He's not going to destroy the people after all. Um, but he does punish them with a plague. So he does actually punish them. He just doesn't destroy them. 
Uh, so I guess they learned their lesson that way. But in verses 11 through 14, God's convincing, I mean, sorry, Moses is convincing God to have mercy on the people and to not destroy them. And this is one of the first instances we have since the Garden of Eden where we have Moses intervening and asking God's mercy upon a totally wicked people. Right? This is different from other instances in the Old Testament, such as like an Abraham situation where God... Um, where he's asking God to intervene based on the merits of a few righteous people. So we have lots of examples of that in Scripture, right, where there's a few good people and someone pleads to God, please save this large group of people because there's a few people doing good, right? But this is not that situation. This is everybody's bad, and Moses is trying to ask God's mercy on behalf of them. So, verse 14, the Lord relented and not bring upon his people the disaster he had threatened, but he does punish them with this plague. So, Moses goes down off of the mountain, and he sees this golden calf and is so furious that he throws down and breaks the stone tablets, right? This beautiful new stone tablet that God had given him. Can you imagine being given a gift by God and then destroying it, you know, like five minutes later? It's crazy, but that demonstrates how distraught Moses was. And then Aaron comes up. And if you remember the story of the golden calf, what happens is the people were crying to Aaron, like, where's Moses? What are we going to do? Give us something to worship. So Aaron takes their gold. He tells them to collect their gold, and they put it in the fire, and they make a golden calf. So Moses basically questions Aaron. He's like, what's going on? You know, what happened? And Aaron then says to Moses something that I'm like, I wonder what Moses was thinking when Aaron says these things to him. Aaron says things like, these people are so prone to evil. You know, these people. And he says, Moses, I just threw the gold into the fire and out came this golden calf. And you can imagine, this is like probably the original phrase where someone said like, really? Are you serious, Aaron? But despite all that, God forgives his people and renews his covenant with Israel and he gives them new tablets of stone uh, and our, the story progresses. So Exodus 35 through 40 we have the actual completion of the tabernacle. Chapters 35 through 40 basically go back through in painstaking detail of how the Israelites followed God's instructions exactly and Moses set everything up perfectly right down to a T of everything God had asked him to do. Then finally, after everything is completed and arranged to God's liking, the Lord descends on the tabernacle in a cloud of glory. Remember, this is the same cloud, as we talked about earlier, that was on the mountain, terrifying people. The people were afraid to even approach the cloud because it was so scary and bright. There's lightning. But now it's descending down. It's going to be amongst them. So um, finally, Moses tries to go into the tabernacle after God had arrived in the tabernacle, but he can't. And that begs the question of why. Why can't Moses enter the tabernacle now? Well, I read a, or I listened to a podcast by um, Matt Chandler, who's a famous uh, a Christian preacher, if, if you're not familiar with that name, and he described it really well when he talks about God as a consuming fire. And it made me think of this, is this is why Moses can't go in to be in God's presence directly. Because uh, when Matt Chandler was talking about this, a consuming fire is not the kind of fire that we think about when we're like, 
we're talking about a, a precious metal being refined by fire and it's made pure by fire. That's not the kind of fire we're talking about. We're talking about a consuming fire. When we talk about God as a consuming fire, we're talking about a fire that's like the sun, right? So there's nothing that can be exposed to the sun's fire and energy and light um, close up that can come out alive. It's just not possible, unless you're Superman, and then maybe you're re-energized by the sun. That's neither here nor there. Um, so that's the kind of fire we're talking about, though. So God is a consuming fire. So since Moses, the Israelites' fearless leader, right, isn't allowed to go into the tabernacle, how are the people of God supposed to enter into God's presence into the tabernacle? Well, this is where the book of Leviticus, Leviticus comes in, and we're going to discuss that in our next week. So we've kind of sped through a lot of stuff here. I'm sorry if this, wasn't, this talk wasn't as good as Avengers Infinity War, but uh, what I tried to do is kind of bring out some of the highlights of these different sections of Scripture. And the points I just want to close with are, as we come to the close of this book of Exodus, you know, there's a lot of cool things that happen in it. There's a lot of huge uh, events that shape things that we do today. And I just want to give you some take-home points. So just like God brought the Israel, Israelites out of Egypt, so He also brings us out of the bondage of our sin. And just like the Israelite story doesn't end after the parting of the Red Sea, so our story does not end after our sins are washed away in the waters of baptism, right? That's just the beginning of the story. God is desperately pursuing us to be in His presence, in His covenant, in a relationship with Him, as He does here in Exodus, and He has offered victory to us. And so on Easter Sunday today, we're reminded of that pursuit of us as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We should never forget that Jesus through Jesus as our intercessor, we have no need for a tabernacle or Ark of the Covenant or priests, but rather we have open access to the maker of the universe, the God that delivered the Israelites from bondage, the God whose presence is so holy that we would literally die if we came into contact with Him without the presence of Jesus. And that's an incredible thought that we can go right now, we can just think, we can speak, and we are in the presence of God, the holy God of history. And so when we go to our homes today, and as we go throughout this work week, I want us to remember that we serve an almighty God and that we should be eternally grateful for His deliverance and for His covenant. And so with that, we conclude Exodus. Okay, so thank you to Peter Snell for doing a fabulous job with his first time on the, uh, the podcast and teaching in class. And uh, thank you to uh, his paid advertisement of <laughs> the Avengers Infinity War. I uh, hope you're ex all excited to see that April 28th when it comes out. Uh, we'll be back next week with Leviticus, so the third book of the Torah. And this is a book I think that probably gets a hard rap. Obviously, there's a lot of laws in it. There's a lot of kind of weird and uncomfortable stuff. This, for me at least, is the book when I'm trying to read through the Old Testament that I always get stuck on. Um, but I'm, I'm sure that Scott will bring to us a message uh, that shows something really special about this book. And so I think it's a book like that that often gets overlooked that'll be really great in a series like this where we're able to view it uh, kind of from a 10,000-foot view and, and sort of look at it as a whole as a book and see how it factors into 
the gospel, but also just the story of the Israelites and the Torah, as it were. So I look forward to that. I hope you'll be back with us then. If you have any recommendations for this podcast or uh, you want to talk more about these topics, please reach out to me, Kyle Fagala, on Facebook. And of course, if you're in the Memphis area at Highland Church of Christ, 400 North Houston Levy, rather, in Cordova, we would love for you to come visit us. So 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we're here every Sunday, 52 times a year, with few exceptions. We would love for you to come and visit with us, and so you can message me if you're in town, and I'll help you get there. So that's it for this week. Hope you have a great week. Happy Easter. We will see you soon. Bye-bye.